Okay, the only announcement that I'm aware of, actually two, we have the sign-up sheet out on the bulletin board that's on a table out there for the meal train that we're uh, putting together for ministry of those in the congregation uh, needing that. And then uh, also we have the Chafer Pastors Conference coming up. And there's various things that need uh, volunteers. And we have uh, one of the needs we always have sometimes, I think we do this time, is transportation to and from airports. Uh, So especially for some of the speakers. So be in prayer for that, and the conference is everything's starting to come together, and if you think about it, pray for the Israel trip, because that too is coming together, and Barb has to handle everything along with Connie, so you can pray for them, all right? How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. We all need to uh, confess sin, sometimes three-digit times a day, sometimes four-digit times a day, but we all need to make sure we're walking with the Lord and keep short accounts. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer for you to make sure you're right with the Holy Spirit in preparation for our study tonight. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful that we can come together tonight just to be refreshed by your word and to come to understand your grace in a richer way as we examine or continue to examine your grace to Israel throughout this period of the judges when they did little that was right. And they are actually portrayed pretty well in Samson's life as he uh, reflects what's going on spiritually in the nation by his own Uh, just rather uh, ignorance of you, ignoring you, as it were, uh, not being very concerned at all with what you have called him to do. And Father, we thank you that we have this as an example because it encourages us in our walk that your grace toward us is unmeasured and without limits. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Just to remind you, as I have numerous times in this study, that in Hebrews chapter 11, we have a list of a large number of faith heroes in the, in the Hebrew scriptures. And some of them have more than one verse. Some of them uh, share a verse with several others. But when we get down to verse 32, as the writer of Hebrews is wrapping up this hall of faith chapter, he says, and what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel of the prophets and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword out of weaknesses were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. And there we have four of the judges, actually five if you include Samuel, but he's not in the book of Judges, Gideon and Barak, Samson and Jephthah, and they're not even listed in chronological order or the order in which they appear in the book. Uh, so, and the emphasis there is at some points they trusted God, and for that, God elevates them to have their name mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. So that tells us that, that the metric that God uses in praising the, the lives of those who have trusted Him is a very different metric. He's not permissive, He is gracious. But it's a different metric than the one you and I think he's going to use 
when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So I always find that to be uh, very, very encouraging. Now, as we have looked at the book of Judges in our study, we have seen in the the previous five cycles of deliverance where God raises up a deliverer and his modus operandi with the exception of Ehud, but after Ehud assassinates um, Fatty in the outhouse, that's Eglon of Moab, after that takes place, what he does is he goes out and does raise an army. Samson's the only one that doesn't raise an army. Samson is really, he's a picture of where their society has declined to and where ours has declined to. It's all about Samson. He is the poster child of self-absorption, self-indulgence, self-justification. And God does not play a role in what his thinking is until we get to the latter part of this particular of this particular chapter. And what we see in the life of the nation Israel is what is repeated again and again in the history of nations. And this has been observed by untold number of historians that civilizations have cycles that they go through. And we're familiar with some of those. They start off in bondage, yearning for freedom, and then they go through several stages until they have achieved success and prosperity. Then they fail the prosperity test. And then the succeeding generations or two uh, become soft and weak, turn their backs on the ideals and the standards of those that broke free from the tyranny of slavery. And then once again, they bring that nation down into slavery. Those cycles are observed empirically by historians, a number of historians over the years, and that is different from what we see in Israel, but it's also the same. It's different because Israel is a covenant nation with God. It is the only nation in the history of the world that is a covenant nation with God. And that sets it apart from the cycles that other nations go through. They go through those other cycles in direct proportion to their rejection of the divine institutions. And as a result of their rejection of the divine institutions, God has built into the uh, basic warp and woof of human nature that when we go against the divine institutions, we're going to bring uh, chaos into our lives, and it's going to lead to a a collapse. And God, in His grace, and for purposes that we probably would have a hard time understanding, He sometimes ameliorates those consequences for those nations. He gives them a long time to change. Some civilizations have gone through various ups and downs before they just collapse under the weight of their own. Uh, subjectivity and idolatry, and then they are enslaved again. But others, God is gracious to, but according to what he's doing in history. Same thing is true for individuals. And that's really the backdrop that I see. One of the major themes in uh, Judges is God's grace to an undeserving people. But we have to apply that on a broader scale. We are all undeserving people. We are all sinners. We all see patterns in our own lives that imitate the same patterns that we see in in uh, Israel. But by God's grace, we turn back from that, and through a study of the Word, we can we can reverse that. So Israel goes through these these various cycles, and they are at the bottom as far as the way the writer has described this. They're at the bottom. And this is the last cycle, and it's distinctively different. And what we see is that they are so different from the conquest generation in the same way that this generation, the generation coming up today, the generation of millennials and those who come after the millennials, and what we see there is that they are a polar opposite in their thinking to the founding fathers. And this does not bode well for our nation. 
But we also know that God has a plan. We have a pretty good idea of what's going to happen at, at the end of the church age. We just don't know if that's going to be tonight or in another hundred years. But there are certainly certain trends that seem to think that that it may be closer than a lot of people think, but I don't think it's as close as a lot of people think either. I think when you really study what happens in the depravity of Israel under Manasseh and under Ahab and Jezebel, that you realize that we, there's maybe some places in America that are imitating that now, but as a whole, we're a long way from it, but we could travel that distance in a heartbeat. So we just depend upon God's grace. So that's what we see here, and that's the backdrop for the lessons that we learn here is that God can use even rebellious believers, carnal believers, immature believers to accomplish his will despite their negative volition and rejection because God in the end will accomplish his purposes in history. So what we see in terms of a basic overview, and well, I'll go back over the title. See, this is that great episode when God uh, empowers uh, Samson and he uses the jawbone of an ass to defeat the Philistines. And what we're going to learn there is you miss it in the English, but in the Hebrew, it's very punny, P-U-N-N-Y. And that's the point is he uses a jackass bone, jawbone, to punish the jackass Philistines. God uses jackasses. All right. So we have the um, basic overview of Samson's life, the chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16. We've looked at the birth of Samson as a unique deliverer because he's chosen by God. Uh, he is announced by the angel of the Lord. He has a Nazarene vow, and he is a picture of God's undeserved grace. Second, and that's in chapter 13. In chapter 13:25, which is the last verse and transition verse to chapter 14, we read, "And the spirit of the Lord began to move upon him at Mahanadan." between Zorah and Eshtaol, and that really sets up everything that happens in chapters uh, 14, 15, and 16. The Holy Spirit is moving through him, uh, useless as he is spiritually, in order to create such a, a havoc and such chaos between the Israelites and the Philistines that it stops their assimilation, uh, their compromise with the culture. Uh, they are being conformed in Paul's language of Romans 12:2, where he says, do not be conformed to the world. They are being conformed to the world and glad of it. So he's going to uh, work on them. So this section is really defined by the first statement I just read in verse 25 of chapter 13 to the last verse of the chapter we're looking at tonight. And so the Holy Spirit begins to move upon him. This is a different word than the one we'll see tonight, where the Holy Spirit comes upon him uh, like a rushing wind, just a sudden rush of power. This is a word that he's beginning to move on him, to, and he's using Samson to just cause trouble, to stir up trouble in the land. And so the, the map, basic map, comes into effect here. We have the five cities of the Philistines, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdo, down near the coast. And then we have Gath and Ekron uh, in just at the foothills. You can see on the topographical map that the foothills begin. These are the five cities of the Philistines. And then these cities are somewhat familiar for biblical studies. You have Beth Shemesh and Azekah. This is the area uh, down by Azekah is where... Uh, David fought Goliath. So this is a an area where many things happen. And just off the map, even though it's not mentioned on the map, or I would have moved it over, is is Bethlehem and then uh, then Jerusalem. So that sets our context there. And that Samson goes down to Timnah, and this shows that the Holy Spirit is moving upon him, and despite his lust for this woman is ignorance and ignoring of the Mosaic law, 
uh, and his focus on just his own pleasures. Uh, the Holy Spirit is using this to accomplish uh, what he wants to accomplish. So then we came to the end in chapter 14 last time, 14 and 15, all run together. There's a slight difference with the Delilah episode when we get into chapter 16 down in Gaza. But at the end of chapter uh, 14, after he has uh, married and become uh, uh, are, are betrothed, let me say. He's not actually married. He, there's no consummation of the wedding. After the uh, episode with the wager and his riddle, you notice Samson was a, a we won't call him the riddler, but he is, he, he has poetry. He has, the, the riddle is poetry, and then we're going to see some poetry from him again. Uh, in this chapter, we usually don't think of Samson as a poet, but there's more poetry in his life than we see in others uh, other than David in the Psalms and others who've written the Psalms. So he, he goes home, and uh, Samson's wife's father is gives him gives her to his companion, the one who had been his best man. So some time goes by. And we see that because of the way the next verse starts, the next chapter, after a while, which is a good rendition of what the what the Hebrew says. So there's six basic divisions that we're going to go through. The first takes place at Samson's father-in-law's house. When Samson comes back, uh, because he's changed his mind, he never really made a decision to end the marriage. He just went off in a huff and had a temper tantrum. And the father-in-law just said, well, I guess he's he's done with my daughter, so he married his daughter off. But there's a scene there at the father-in-law's house, and as a result of that, he decides he's going to uh, start causing mischief among the uh, Philistines, which is a good way to translate what the Hebrew says. And that leads to this economic destruction uh, by the jackals. And then Samson is going to be captured and tied up, and the Holy Spirit's going to rush upon him. The the bonds are going to fall from his hands. And then he's going to get the uh, jackass jaw uh, from a fresh, it's a freshly dead jackass. And he's going to take the jaw, and he's going to slaughter a number of Philistines. And then God is going to bless him in some ways, and then we're going to see at the end that he's still the same old self-absorbed Samson. So, in the first part of chapter 15, we read, After a while, in the time of wheat harvest, it happened that Samson visited his wife with a young goat. And he said, Let me go into my wife, into her room. But her father would not permit him to go. Her father said, I really thought you thoroughly hated her. Therefore, I gave her to your companion. Is not your younger sister better than she? Uh, Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be blameless regarding the Philistines if I harm them. That's uh, not quite what he says. But we'll get into that. Okay, so this continues the story that started back in chapter 13 where the Spirit of the Lord began to stir up uh, Samson. And when we get into this first verse, we read the opening, which is after a while, and that uh, indicates that there's some length of time. Now, chapter 13, I mean, chapters 14 and 15 don't give us a time frame, but this does because a short time's gone by and tells us that it's the time of the wheat harvest. And the time of the wheat harvest is in May. So the wedding was probably early spring, probably back in the middle to the end of, of uh, March. And so that is, so he's gone away for a couple of months. And now he decides that, well, he really does want to continue with the nuptials, so he's going to get uh, get married. So it's the time of the wheat harvest. And so I have a picture here of a wheat field, 
And the word that is used for wheat here, there's several different words for wheat, is of what is called the Durham variety, which was very common throughout the ancient Near East, throughout the Levant area, the uh, eastern uh, coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And it, we find it in a number of uh, other uh, documents and tablets, clay tablets, which we found. It occurs in Ugaritic, which is northwest uh, Canaanite, which is uh, up in the Lebanon, Syria area. And it it's very, has a common use all throughout this uh, first millennium uh, B- B.C., uh, going down to, um, you know, the the fourth or fifth century B.C. There's a reference in uh, in Ruth to a a, a calendar um, th- where you have the language in Ruth one twenty two talking about the 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 time of the month according to agricultural agricultural standards and excavation at Gezer, uh, which is uh, southwest of Jerusalem. In 1908, they found a stone, which is what's depicted on the left side of the of the of the slide up there, that dates from 925 BC. So that's that's just about the time that Solomon died, and the northern and southern kingdoms were split. And it had a calendar poem on it, uh, geared to harvest expectations. So the months aren't named. They're identified by what is happening agriculturally at that time. And so this tells us that uh, the wheat harvest would be in, uh, would be in May. And uh, then it tells us that Samson comes with a young goat. And we don't know a whole lot about this particular custom, but it was probably like a housewarming gift or a makeup gift that a goat would have had some value other than just uh, being a, a, a meal. Uh, this goat could have grown up if it was uh, female, could have had uh, babies and uh, kids. And uh, if it a male goat, then it could have uh, been used uh, to propagate. So uh, we don't know, but this would be something similar to a custom where uh, we might go after... Uh, over to somebody's house and bring flowers or bring a bottle of wine or something like that. Uh, But this has the idea more of just bringing about reconciliation. Now, what happens next is he asks to go into his wife. Now, this could be an idiom that is describing uh, his desire to consummate uh, the union, but it could just mean that he wants to go in to talk to her. It's, It's ambiguous in the text. But the father says, no, no, you're not going in. You don't have anything to do with her anymore. She is married. And uh, so Samson is quite surprised by the fact that he uh, no longer has this woman as, as his wife and that he's not going to have the option to get married. And the father goes on and he explains a little more uh, in verse 2. And in verse 2, he says, I really thought that you thoroughly hated her. Therefore, I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister better than she? Take her instead. So he's got, the, the father's got a counter offer to try to smooth things over. What we need to understand is that the way marriage was conducted in the Philistine culture was different from the Israelite culture, but both of them were vastly different from the way we conduct things in terms of, of dating and proposals and and getting married. Usually the parents would arrange the marriage, but in this case uh, it was Samson who, because he saw what was good in his eyes, I pointed that out, that that's really the correct translation when we go back to early uh, 14, uh, chapter 14, when he says, I've seen a woman, um, and, and that indicates he, his, the look of his eyes, and he's, he says, get her for me, for she pleases me well. And it's the same language and same verbiage we have in the two key verses in Judges that everyone did what? 
They did what was right in their own eyes. So that's what Samson says. She's right in my eyes. So that you miss that the way they translate it in the text, but they're making a point that Samson is the poster child for the whole book. He is exhibiting the the key trait of Israel. He, he just wants to do whatever is going to bring him uh, emotional pleasure. So the father says that he's um, he, he he's he they, they go through. Well, let me get back to the marriage. What happens is they have a contract, and in the betrothal period, which is what they were celebrating in the uh, in the banquet of chapter fourteen. They're as good as married. She's called a wife. He's called a husband. But they have not yet consummated. They haven't yet had the honeymoon. So it's not a done deal. And in that time, if there is some fault found, then they can uh, have a divorce and, and break the marriage contract. And so that's what they've done, is that when he went off in a pity party, then the father took that as complete rejection, and so he ended the contract and gave her, he's ready to marry her off and get the dowry and everything, so he marries her off to uh, the one who would have been uh, the best man. Now, we're not told anything about him, but it seems like everybody else is a Philistine, so that all those companions were Philistines. So we see how... how uh, Samson is just completely assimilated to the Philistine culture. He doesn't see much of a difference, and he's just happy to go along, and uh, that's the same way Israel is. He's a perfect picture of Israel's assimilation to the Philistines, but then something happens, and that uh, is what uh, you know, God was intervening, and God wants to break all this assimilation uh, up. And so the the father wants to make a deal and says, look at the daughter. Isn't she better looking than the other? You can just start seeing him shaking his head. Yes, she's better looking. This is a better deal for you after all, because he wants to smooth things over. But Samson says to them, and it's interesting, who's the them? It's just her father. Maybe he's brought the younger one out and say, see, look at her and everything. So now he's talking to them, uh, the father and the younger sister, and says this time, and I've translated this a little better from the Hebrew, this time I shall be guiltless regarding the Philistines when I bring mischief to them. The Hebrew word there is ra, R-A, which has sort of the idea of it can be a disaster, it can be harm, it can be evil. So it has a range of meanings, but he's going to bring trouble uh, to the Philistines. So that brings us down to the next next section, starting in um, in verse 4. And we're going to see how God breaks things up. And the scene shifts from the home of his uh, father, almost father-in-law to out in the field because he is going to now t bring some mischief upon the Philistines. Now, this getting to this is why the wheat harvest was mentioned at the beginning. He's, it's not just a chronological marker. It's to remind us that in, this, in the agricultural cycle, that this is the time when the wheat is coming to its maturity and it's time for it to be harvested. And this is one of the major crops that the Philistines had, both for internal consumption as well as trading. And what Samson is about to do is wipe out their economy. This is a thought-out tactic. He's not just having a little temper tantrum and thinking, well, I'm going to go down and burn up a bunch of their fields. He wants to do some serious damage to their wheat crop so that they're in economic trouble. So he goes out, and that's why he gets 300 jackals. They are not uh, foxes. The word there for foxes is the word uh, shual. And 
the Hebrew Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament, which came out in the late 90s, and up until recently was had become the the gold standard for Hebrew lexicons, uh, has a comment in there that uh, uh, Shual is uh, that regarding that it states the animal mentioned in the Bible is not the fox known in Europe but the jackal, and then the most recent lexicon that came out, which is the Dictionary of Classical Hebrew (DCH). Uh, states this is a jackal. This is its first meaning that it states. And and uh, and you'll look at older commentaries. They just translate it as fox because the word shual can be a fox or can be a jackal. Or it can be several other members of the uh, canine family. So it says um, it's a jackal and identifies it as an omnivorous mammal of the genus Canis. So this is what this means. It's not, uh, it's not foxes, it's jackals, which makes a, a lot more sense because a jackal is a, in the dog family, and unlike the fox, which is, operates on its own individually, the jackals run in packs. So it's easier to catch 300 jackals than it is to catch 300 foxes. <laughs> so it there um the jackals were also very common in the region. So this is um this is what he's doing and and it raises a lot of questions. Now if just think about this. Some of you guys grew up on a ranch or on a farm or out in the country. How would you go about catching 300 jackals? Furthermore, how are you going to tie their tails together? How many times are you going to get bitten? And then how are you, I can just see you've got, you've got these two jackals tied together and you grabbed them by the tail so they're nipping at each other and nipping at you and now you're going to stick a, a lit torch into the tail to be carried in the tail. I mean, this is a thought out procedure. And of course we know that the Spirit of God is giving him the wisdom and the skill to be able to do this. And the way it's covered in the text is like this is just an easy matter of fact thing to do. He just went out and caught 300, 300 jackals and tied, tied them together by the tail and stuck a torch in there. And that's how it says it's very fast, it's very quick. Uh, the verbs uh, make it uh, r run fast. It's a quick narrative. And when he, once he got the torches in there, now they weren't lit when he, they put them between the tail, and then he lit them. That must have been fun going around. You've got one torch to light the others. And what do you think those those jackals are going to be wanting to do as you're coming towards them. So there's a lot going on in the divine side of this equation to make this happen than what the text is is emphasizing, but it, it causes us to think about it. And And I just want to remind you that I've said this often, that the way Scripture is written is not to answer all of our questions, but it's to get us to think about things that aren't said and to come to understand the Scripture that it's not something you pick up your Bible and just read it and get all the answers. If God had wanted to do that, he could have written a systematic theology and handed it to us, but what would happen? We would read the systematic theology, set it down, all our questions are answered, and boom, we're done. But we have to keep going back to the Scripture, reading it over and over and over again in order to see things that we didn't see the previous 20, 30, or 40 times that we read through the Scripture. So that's what's going on here. And he sends these out into the standing grain of the Philistines. That's the grain that's in the field. Now what's interesting is that by tying their tails together, they're pulling against each other. So if he had just taken the 300 jackals and tied their tails together, they would have just run, and maybe they all would have run, their pack animals, all in the same direction and would not have done as much damage. But by tying their tails together, one's pulling one way, the other's pulling the other way, and when they're trying to run to get away from the fire on their tail, what are, how are they going to go through the field? They're going to go in a zigzag manner. They're just going to go around, and they're, they're going to do a tremendous amount of damage, and they're going to get the, 
the grain caught on fire. And not only that, it says it, it burned up the shocks and the standing grain, as well as the vineyards and the olive groves. They had a they had a huge grass fire, but it was a wheat fire that burned up their olive groves. So this caused major economic damage uh, to the Philistines. But what's interesting is their response. They know who did it, and they say, ask the question, who did this? And when the answer came, well, Samson, notice how they identify him. He's the son-in-law of the Timnite because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. So it's all the Timnite father-in-law's problem. He caused this. They don't blame Samson. They can't do anything about Samson. You ever notice that when people can't do anything about the person that's really done something to them, they they go after somebody they can handle. And that's what's happening. They, They can't deal with Samson. So they're going to take it out on the family. And it just shows the absolute brutality and barbarity of paganism. They go and they burn the father's house down with, with uh, the first daughter and her father with fire. So they burn them up. They're really mad. They have lost their livelihood. They have lost, in some cases, probably their homes and everything else. He has done significant damage, and they take it out on him in anger, and they they burn the house down around the family. And one of the interesting things that you should think about as we go through, we'll get to Dinah next week, not um, Delilah next week, is when we get there, think about how women, the role of women in this episode of Samson, from chapter 13 through chapter 16. How are women treated? How are they viewed? Because it's not good. And that's what paganism does. You know, I remember teaching this back in the late 70s, and you still had some people trying to pass the Equal Rights Amendment, and you had... Um, sort of the modern feminist movement was in its heyday, and you would start teaching about this. And I remember reading one commentary written by a woman because they, they're thinking that God's approving of this. God isn't approving of this. He's showing how bad it is when pagan, paganism destroys the relationship between the sexes. And who'd have ever thought 40 years later that the the feminist movement has been turned upside down because of uh, the, the, the paganism of gender confusion. That there, oh, women, can, women now have to compete against men who are under the delusion that they're really a woman. They're psychotic. And so they have to compete against psychotic male athletes, and they're almost always defeated. And who'd have thought we would come to that? But that's what pagan do, paganism does, because inherently paganism is a is the rejection of God's truth. It's worshiping the creature rather than the creator, and therefore it rewrites and overturns reality. And because they're so divorced from reality, they're trying to make everything up, and it's self-destructive. It destroys cultures, and that's what we are, where we are. And some parts of this country are worse than other parts of the country, and I thank God we live in Texas. But we've got a lot of people in this state who should not be here anymore because they don't belong here. They have the wrong kind of thinking. And people think, well, you know, what's going on here? The issue is we have law in this land, and it's called the Constitution, and we have to get back to the Constitution. But in an antinomian culture, the pagans don't want to follow the law. They want to make it up as they go along so that one day it's one thing and the next day it's an, the opposite thing. And this is where we are. And thank God we have enough people in this country and we have enough elected representatives and judges that have been appointed that still stand up for absolutes. And so a lot of the craziness gets turn, overturned because of of the courts. 
But this is what happens. The pagan culture, they're angry. They're going to uh, burn everything down. They have a, a, a warped view of the roles of men and women. So Samson says, Since you would do a thing like this, I will take revenge on you, and after that I will cease. Now, we're not so sure what he means by after that I will cease. But what he's uh, pointing out here uh, when we get into verse 7 is that he is going to do something that is going to make the destruction of their economy uh, pale by comparison. And so he says, if basically, if this is the way you're going to treat people, then I am going to take revenge on you, and uh, I'm going to bring this uh, destruction upon you. And so what he does is he attacks them, and we have this phrase, hip and thigh. It, it may come out of a wrestling background. That's one suggestion, but we really don't know the source of the idiom. But we can tell from the context that what that means is that he's going to attack them in an extremely fierce manner that is going to, uh, going to completely defeat them. And so he attacks them with all of his strength with a great slaughter, and then he went down and dwelt in the cliff of the rock, the cleft of the rock of Etam. Now, we don't know exactly where that is, but it is suggested by, by other occurrences that it's somewhere to the southwest of Bethlehem, somewhere in that area, probably around Azekah, which I pointed out uh, on the map earlier. And then after this, uh, Samson gets captured. But one of the things I want you to note here I think this is very important. What Samson says um, basically is, you did want this to me, and I'm going to retaliate in the same way. And so what happens in this episode as we shift from this into the next section is that we see that that um, Samson, the, the Philistines' ethic is uh, that they are going to uh, do whatever they want to, and even punish in an, in unjustly and to an extreme. And Samson's going to turn the same thing. So we see that Samson's response is the level of response of the pagans, of the Philistines. And what happens is when you're, you, generally speaking, when any of us are exposed and surrounded by the relativism and our, of our culture and the paganism of our culture, that unless we are consistently uh, being taught the Word of God and being in the Scriptures and reading the Scriptures and not just reading them and say, okay, I read my Bible today and set it aside, but thinking about how that affects my thinking and what I do, then we will become assimilated into the culture. And before long, we think just like the culture does in moral relativism. That's why Paul says, don't be conformed to the world around you, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's the only option. If you're not being transformed by the renewing of your mind on a day-to-day -day basis, then what's going to happen is you will be conformed and pressed into the mold of, of the world around you. And that's what we're going to see in this next episode. So in this episode, Samson is captured. This is the third uh, section in the, in the narrative. Now the Philistines went up. So after he has burned their fields, after he has announced his retaliation for burning down the home of his almost father-in-law and his almost wife, then he is going to retaliate. And the Philistines come after him with an army. Now, just think about this. You've got one man, and they're coming after him with a large army. The Philistines went up and camped in Judah. So they have moved further east into the territory of Judah. That's there around Ashkelon, not Ashkelon, but around Azekah and up towards Bethlehem. And they deployed themselves against Lehi. I'll show you a map in a minute. But Lehi is located back back towards um, back towards Bethlehem. So that's the Philistine operation. 
And then in verse 10, this is what the men of Judah do. Well, wait a minute. We have these, uh, Phil, the Philistine army is now crossing into our territory. We can't let that happen because back then they were really primitive and they believed in defending borders unlike what we have today. And so they decide that uh, they're going to have a response. And so they go out to meet the Philistine army and they say, why have you come up against us? And the Philistines said, we've come up to arrest Samson to do to him as he has done to us. See, that's that retaliation ethic of the Philistines, tit for tat. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam. How many does it take to take capture one man? 3,000. They're afraid of, of, of Samson. They know what his strength is. So they sent 3,000 down just to get this one man. 3,000 went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines rule over us? What a bunch of passive voices. They just are caving in. Oh, they rule over us, so let's not rock the boat. Let's not upset things. So we're going to have to capture you and take you back, or they're going to do something bad to us. And what does he say to them? As they did to me, so I have done to them. See? Tit for tat. It's that retaliation. He has the same ethic they have. Uh, their, their ethic is stated there at the end of verse 10. We're going to do to him as he has done to us. And Samson says, as they did to me, so I have done to them. So this sounds like the, uh, you know, the feuds that went on in the, the hills of the Appalachians, that these families like the... Uh, McCoys and the Hatfield just go on generationally gener- to generation and one, one fights the other. They're, they do something, I've got to do it back to them. So the response of the men of Judah is in verse, verse 12. But they, that is the men of Judah, said to him, we have come down to arrest you that we may deliver you into the hand of the Philistines. They're just traitors. They're going to give up one of their own citizens over to the enemy because they want to avoid a, a fighting conflict because they, ha- they just want to let, let be and let bygones be bygones and we're just all going to learn. Let's all hold hands and sing Kumbaya together. So Samson thinks about this a minute. He thinks, well, that's probably a good idea because that will get me down into the midst of the Philistines and then I'm just going to let it rip. So he says, just swear to me that you will not kill me yourselves. So in verse 13, that's what they say. They spoke to him and said, no, but we will tie you securely and deliver you into their hand, but we will surely not kill you. So that's a very strong statement. They've made their promise, and they bind him with two new ropes so they wouldn't have rotted or anything. They'd be uh, harder to get out of, and brought him up from the rock, that is the rock of of Edom. Now, this is where we get into the jackass bone section, verse 14. See, there's a picture of of, uh, Samson wielding the jawbone of a, of an ass. Trouble is, in the picture, it looks more like it's a an older jawbone. It's a new, fresh jawbone. And the reason for that is an older jawbone has, has been dried out in the sun. It's going to weigh less. It's going to be more brittle. But if you get a fresh jawbone of a recently deceased donkey then you're going to be able to, it's, it's going to weigh more and it's going to cause more damage. So this is what, what he's going to do. So when he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting, and can't you picture the mob? They are just hooting and hollering and they are so excited. They've captured, uh, captured Samson and then the spirit of the Lord comes mightily upon him. This is that word we saw earlier in chapter 14, uh, salak, which means to rush upon him. 
He didn't call for the Spirit to come. All of a sudden, the Spirit of God came up mightily upon him, and he didn't break the ropes. Read the text carefully. And the ropes that were on his arms became like flax that is burned with fire. They just came apart and like they melted right off his arms. And his bonds broke loose from his hands. It doesn't say he broke his bonds. They, this, is the, this is a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit in making the, the, the ropes just shrivel up and come apart and fall off his arms. And then he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, reached out his hand and took it and killed a thousand men with him. So what a way to destroy a celebratory party. He just comes in all romp and stomp and just kills a thousand of them. And then he decides to wax poetic again. And this is what we have in Judges 15, 16. Now, in the English, they, they, they try to convey something that's going on here in the poetry of the text. But if you don't know Hebrew, you don't get it. And the reason is that the words I have underlined are all the same words, same spelling. It's chamor, C-H-A-M-O-R. It means donkey or jackass, and it also means heap. So he's got to play on words here, which is to catch our attention. What is he saying? So he says, with the jawbone of a, you could translate it this way because some people have, uh, with the jawbone of a jackass, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a jackass, I have slain a thousand men. Okay? But you can also translate it slightly differently. You can translate it as with the jawbone of a jackass, I have made jackasses. Okay, so he's turned tables on them. I've made jackasses with them. Or you could say it could be translated uh, with the jawbone uh, of a jackass, I have made heaps upon heaps. And that would indicate that he's he just piling up the dead all around him. Heaps of dead Philistines here and here and here and here. And so that gives us a sense. It's, it's a play on words because they're both true. And he's made fools of them, and he has also piled up the dead bodies. So now we come to verse 17. So when it was finished... When he had finished speaking, that he threw the jawbone from his hand and called the place Ramath Lehi. Now, Ramath means like a hill, um, and uh, Lehi would be uh, jawbone. So he calls it Jawbone Hill. Now, that's another play on words. Because is this, is this on a hillside, and he's going to rename the name of the hill Jawbone Hill? Or does he refer to these mountains of carcasses as Jawbone Hill? They're the Jawbone Hill. So this is what happens. Now, after he's killed all of these with the Jawbone, he has used up all of his uh, energy, and it's hot, and he's uh, thirsty. And so he, for the first time... In his life that we know of, he turns to God, and he prays. He says, then he became very thirsty, so he cried out to the Lord. That's the first time that that we've seen him do this. He became very thirsty, so he cried out to the Lord and said, you have given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant, and now shall I die of thirst? So there's a hidden criticism there. Uh, Shall I die of thirst and fall into the hand of the uncircumcised? So God split the hollow place that is in Lehi. Lehi is this this rock area, and water came out. So it was the water's trapped inside this this rock, and by splitting the rock, the pressure that's there ca- caused the water to come out. And so he drank, and his spirit returned. It reminds us uh, to some degree. Uh, of of Moses 
as we look at this. It reminds us of when uh, Moses uh, struck the rock to get water out of it to um, provide water for the uh, for the Israelites. So there's certain uh, comparison that's going on here. So what we see here, first of all, is that he calls upon the Lord, which is a good thing. And second, unlike uh, these other cries to the Lord in the book of Judges, uh, the issue here is a personal problem, not a national uh, problem. And all the previous cycles, you have the Israelites crying out to God um, to get rid of the opposing armies. But here, it's just Samson. It's a personal crisis. It's uh, all about him. Third thing we see is that there's a there's an implied comparison with Moses. Like uh, Moses, the Israelites had to deal with the lack of water twice. They came to a rock. One time God said, hit it with your staff. The other time he said, speak to it. Moses disobeyed him and hit it with his staff for which God would discipline him. But God, in his grace, gave them water uh, anyway. So God answers his prayer. So Samson recognizes the role of Yahweh in the victory, but his prayer uh, seems to be a little flawed. But that's because untaught believers don't pray right. And God will listen to them out of grace anyway. So the water came out and he drank. He is revived but we still see a measure of his narcissism, uh, which characterizes the whole of the, uh, of the, the of Israel at this time. So in Judges 15:20, we get a closing statement. The closing statement is that he judged Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines, and he is. He goes on, we don't, we're not told a lot about what happens in the remainder of his life. So when the writer of Hebrews mentions Samson, it could, he could be referring to other things that happened later in his life. But what we're told in the book of Judges, which fits the theme of the book of Judges, doesn't give us a clue what, where he really trusts God unless it's in what he does uh, in Gaza at the end of his of his life, and so he calls the name of the place uh, the Spring of Hakor, uh, which the writer says you can still go there in his day. So it's the scripture always anchors itself to r- real geography, where people can go and see that you can go see where these things happen. And that's one of the great things about going to Israel today is you can go and see where these things happen. But if you're a Mormon and you read the Book of Mormon, you can't go to the places mentioned in the Book of Mormon because they never existed. And you can't find archaeology or any kind of evidence for the Book of Mormon or in, in most other religious books. But with the Bible, you can go to those places. And there's evidence geographical evidence that's there. And so as we come to the conclusion of this, what we see is that God's grace stands out, even in the midst of the disobedience of the people, even in the midst of the disobedience of Samson. And that is one of the key things that we learn, is God's grace extends, and he uses even rebellious, carnal believers to accomplish his will. But the problem is they don't get the credit for that for eternity because he's using them despite themselves and not because they are trusting God. Second thing we learned is that the outside pressure of a culture is such that it has uh, extremely destructive um, consequences on people who are not defending themselves, defending and protecting their brain with the Word of God. Romans 12.2, do not be conformed to the world, but be uh, renovated by the renewing of your mind, 
that you may demonstrate that the will of God is good and complete. That is Romans 12.2. That is what we are to be about. And when you're not renewing your mind, then you're, you're going to um, just, just default. That's your sin nature. That's the default position is the sin nature and the sin nature's affinity to the values of the world around us. Next time we'll come back and wrap up Samson in chapter 16 before we get into the uh, final chapters of Judges, which takes us through. Uh, we got four more chapters to go, so we'll probably be wrapping, wrapping up Judges sometime around the middle of March. And then I'm not sure what I'm doing. I'm toying with a couple of ideas, but, but uh, we'll see what happens. Father, thank you for this time that we have tonight to come together to study your word, to be reminded that that in a decaying culture where we are surrounded and pressured by the values of the world around us, that we need to renew our efforts to protect ourselves uh, by hiding in the fortification of your word, uh, letting your word uh, completely overhaul, renovate our thinking so that we think in terms of reality and not according to the um, not according to the fantasies of our sin nature. And Father, we pray for this church and for the people here that seek to uh, seek to know your word and hide your word in their heart, that they might be able to do that and have a an effective testimony to those around them. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.